0: Good morning, I'm Steve White. Welcome, if you're new to us today, we're glad to have you. We're beginning a study of Exodus today, so open your devices or your Bibles, if you have them hard copy, to Exodus chapters 1 and 2. We're going to uh, give an overview of those chapters and what's happening and set the, uh, set the scene. If you've, global, if you've traveled globally, you've probably at times seen some signage that don't quite make it. That something's got lost in translation, like a few of these. Beware of safety. Or, building asks a smoke visitor in the outside smoking section that you cannot smoke in. I think I know what it means. Bathroom signs, female and male man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Or, a lighted dog end may burn a wooded land. Okay. And please present your octopus. You know. Somebody got a job they shouldn't have had, right? That's what it says. What's true in global signage? Things lost in translation can also be true in the Bible. The Bible uses terms sometimes we don't use any other place in life. We don't see them anywhere. When God put the Bible together, he didn't put a dictionary at the end or a glossary of terms. But what he did do is something better. When he wanted to teach us ideas and what he wants us to understand and grasp, he he provides the story of a life, the account, a history somewhere Uh, For instance, if he wants to teach us about grace, he gives us the story of the prodigal son. When he wants to teach us about faith, he tells us about the man Abraham. When he wants to communicate about covenant love, he tells us about the prophet Hosea and his outstanding and covenant love he has for his wife Gomer. When he wants to teach us about forgiveness, he tells us about the life of Joseph. And when he wants to teach us about salvation, has given us the book of Exodus. We are embarking on a grand journey today. It is filled with mystery and wonder and adventure. It's filled with anticipation. It involves dry seabeds that happen miraculously. It it, it involves uh, smoke on the mountain and lightning and shaking mountain. Water that comes out of a rock. Food that comes down from heaven. Rods that turn into snakes and all kinds of wonderful things. But everything it talks about, the number one thing that tops all the rest is it points us to the glory of God. So today I want us to start in an odd place, the middle of chapter 1 of Exodus. We don't have time to read both chapters, but we're going to start with verse 17 right in the middle of something and go into chapter 2. The midwives feared God, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when the crowd, um, when she could hold him, no, hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds, among the the banks of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the baby and nurse him for me, and I'll pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian bearing a Hebrew, uh, beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. The Exodus is about God rescuing His people, and taking them to a place of hope and rest. He is a God who is always at work. The first two chapters of Exodus cover several decades, and they provide the historical background of the birth and the early years of Moses. It's about salvation, this whole book of Exodus. But even more than that that we'll get into as we go along, here are three principles of salvation that I think we learn out of these first two chapters. First of all, God's plan is to free us for his glory. That's what God is about. Now, we won't go back into all the background. Many of you are acquainted with the background. Suffice to say that there are about 70 Hebrew people that are living in around Egypt because out of God's province, providence, when a famine was going on, this whole family was able to be gathered in the Egyptian area. They'd come there because there was grain there. Now there were 70 and that grew to a great number. They kept reproducing and reproducing to the point that Pharaoh was concerned about how many Hebrew people there were. And we say Hebrews, we're talking about the Jewish people. We could also say Israelites. We'll use all those terms as we preach to this. Hebrews, Israelites, Jews. All the same people. They're becoming numerous. And so verses 9 and 14 say earlier this. Look, become, this is Pharaoh speaking. They have become much too numerous for us. We must deal with them, or they will become more numerous. And if war breaks out, uh, we'll join our enemies and fight against us. And then we're told, So the Egyptians put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Now in the original language, in the Hebrew language that is, verse 14 is translated this way. They made their lives bitter with serving and brick and mortar and with every kind of serving with every kind of serving they made them serve. Now, obviously, the translators didn't didn't pass that version because it's pretty redundant and repetitive and lifeless. But you get the point. And there's a subtle point all through Exodus, and it's this. That if you serve anything other than the living God, you are a slave. You're a slave. You're only free when you're serving God absolutely with him at the center of your life. Why? Because you were made for God's glory. I was created for God's glory as well. That's the large theme. And you can, you can miss it. You get so caught up in the mystery of the stories that you forget the underlying message. My grandkids last week were all out of the yard trying to fill their baskets with Easter eggs and running right past Easter eggs to fill their baskets. They were, they were passing the obvious to do the bigger thing. That happens in scripture. Is say you get so, you, get, you, you walk right by certain things. You miss, you miss the bigger things that are right there in front of your eyes. And we don't want to be guilty of doing that. And so for that reason, we have to understand what this is all about. Now if you've had your kids or watched with them, the animated version of the Prince of Egypt, which was a really good treatment of Moses' life. Or maybe you remember and Heston and the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've seen that. They, they, they both miss things as do other treatments because it shows Moses standing before Pharaoh saying, let my people go. But that wasn't the message fully. The message was, let my people go that they may worship me. That they may worship me. Over and over again. Let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may have a festival for me in the desert. If you leave that part out... We miss the bigger picture of what the freedom is about. And in our culture, we need that. When you study Exodus, as we move through, what's going to happen? We have Moses' life, but eventually there's going to be the construction of the tabernacle. Which was constructed for the glory of God and the worship of his people. And people who tell the story of Moses stop before that. But it misses the bigger thing. We are saved We are made free that we may glorify the Lord. That's important in our culture because in our culture, we confuse freedom with license. I am free. People pride themselves. I am free to do anything I want to do with my life. And nobody should tell me how I have to live. That's the rebellious spirit. That's the sin nature in all of us. We are not free to do anything we want to do. We are made free to glorify the name of the Lord. Life works best that way because that's why you were created. That's why I was created. We were created to glorify our creator. And when we live any way outside of that, we are slaves. That's That's not my word. That's what the Bible teaches. In other words, until you are ravished by and bowed down, and astounded before the beauty and the glory and the presence of Almighty God, you really aren't free. He has to captivate you. You have to be captivated by his presence, his glory, and his beauty. Unless you're serving the living God, unless he is the most important person and thing in your life, unless you're centered on him, you are still a slave. One thing we share in common is we want our lives to have significance. We want them to have value. We want them to have meaning. What happens when God is in first place, we chase everything else down. We depend on our pedigree for a sense of worth and value or the, where we live, the jobs we hold, the kids we raise, uh, the, the accolades we get, the reputation we have, our morality, our goodness, our niceness, and that, that, that will not cut it because all of that is unpredictable, even even in our goodness, we're not always all that good. We disappoint ourselves and our own standards. No, without God at the center, we're slaves. If you lose one of these other things, you're going to fall apart. So God loves saving people for his glory. In fact, I would say that those four words, that's the theme, these are the theme of Exodus. Saved for God's glory. Say it with me. Saved for God's glory. Now drive that deeply in your heart. As we study, you're saved for God's glory. Second, God's plan is to prepare us, not ignore us. It's interesting, the first two chapters of Exodus, the name of God is only mentioned twice in chapter 1. That's it. And you read chapters 1 and 2, and things simply go from bad to worse over and again. God doesn't seem to be around. Pharaoh certainly is the true villain at the very beginning of Exodus. And this is why. First of all, he is opposing God's people. God's people, this nation he's forming, is to be set apart for his glory. No other nation in the world cares about the name of God. But when God called Abraham, he did so because he saw something different about Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to set you apart for my glory. Pharaoh is opposing that. He's pressing down this people so they'll do anything but glorify God. He's also opposing God's promise. He promised Abraham, I'm going to make you this great nation. He said, Your, your descendants are going to be more than the, than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Pharaoh's fighting against that by putting them to hard labor, ordering babies to be killed, keeping the population from growing. And he's also opposing God's plan, which is to get these people into freedom and to get them to a land that eventually will be called Israel, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, out of which the Messiah is to be born. And Pharaoh is opposing all of that. Even though this hard labor is happening and they keep having babies and then he tells the midwives, I want you to kill baby baby boys when they're killed. They can't do it. And then he tells all the people, anybody, Egyptian, Hebrew, when you know a male Hebrew baby is born, kill him. They continue to be fruitful and multiply. And God's name is mentioned only in chapter 1, verse 17, and verse 20. It's almost a subtle way in which you can hear the cries of the heart. Where are you, God? Have you ever asked that of God? In a miscarriage? Your husband walks out, your kid rebels, you end up in juvenile court, someone you love turns against you, your job is discontinued, downsized, financial ruin, any number of things. And we're tempted to say, Where are you, God? Maybe you you pray prayer after prayer after prayer. You lay your specifics out, and nothing's happening. And you think, God, do you care? You see, Exodus is a reminder to us that God always remembers his people. I don't know where you are today and where you may be struggling. God always remembers his people. And here, Pharaoh's plans not only backfire, But God converts his evil plan and uses them, his plan, to accomplish his own will. God's own will. Two things, notice. God uses this ungodly decree. Now, Pharaoh's persecution is severe. He's enslaving the Hebrews. uh, and, and And yet, his doing so and ordering the midwives to kill the babies, that only leads them to acts of bravery also by Jochebed, and to ethnic solidarity. He says, I'm going to kill all these male infants. But despite that, things good keep happening behind the scenes. So here's Jochebed that knows what the order is. That's Moses' mother. And the Bible says that she looks on him and sees him as a fine child. You saw that in our text we read. He's a fine child. Acts 7, uh, when the gospel is being presented, calls Moses no ordinary child. The Hebrew writer in the New Testament says his parents looked at him and saw that he is no ordinary child. But didn't we all do that when our babies were born? We looked at him, man, this is a great kid right here. You know? I remember that, Diana, in those days, you, know, you shared your room, and I remember the, the woman next to us with the curtain pulled. You know, she had her like number five or six. Her husband walked in and said, yep, looks like all the others. <laughs> I felt so sorry for her. My parents looked at me. I know they said, that is no ordinary child. I was born with 11 toes and two teeth. I was no ordinary child. I'm not joking. Don't stare at me. That's true. And don't ask to see my feet. That's rude. Don't do that. I'm fine now. I was a freak of nature. I was no ordinary child. You know, moms and dads, this is an aside right now. I'm not preaching about this today. But, you know, do you realize what's locked into your kids? Do you realize what potential is there? Do you realize they're simply a gift from God? And they're on loan for a brief time. And your number one job is to see that they live ultimately for the glory of God. Now, are they going to get that when they're 13? No. But they need to see you live it out. Are you 13? Sorry, I didn't mean to insult you. Okay. <laughs> All right. But you don't quite get it yet. Okay. Um, but but, but you, 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 we train them in a way till. till the, the best thing we want to see of our kids, that they love Jesus Christ with everything they've got. That's what it's about. And if we don't live that way as parents, how are they going to get it? Don't let the church be responsible for that. You're responsible for that. All right, well, that's the sermon I wasn't going to preach. Uh, anyway, so, uh, so Jochebed puts, uh, kind of obeys Pharaoh, puts him in the Nile, places him there, doesn't throw him in the Nile, in his basket. Pharaoh's daughter, providentially, is going to take a bath. She sees this baby, notes a Hebrew baby, takes it out of the water, later calls him, names him said Moses, calls him, it means, that name means it drew him out of the water. And there's Miriam, Moses' older sister, watching from a distance, steps in. Hey, you want me to find somebody to nurse that baby for you? Yeah, why don't you go find somebody? And, of course, runs right back to Moses' mother who gets him back to nurse him and train him until he's weaned, plus gets paid for it by Pharaoh, the very one who wants to kill him. Doesn't God have a great sense of humor? (laughs) That's what God does. He's a great worker in people's lives. And so Moses is raised with the finest, among the finest of Egypt. Intellectually, socially, socially. In every way possible, he has the finest of everything, everything in science and in architecture and in biology and and, in psychology, everything that's available in the best universities. Moses grew up, he was being prepared to be the great liberator of God's people. What a great God to do something like this. And, you know, I, I want you to know that everything, that everything bad that Pharaoh wanted to do, God used for good. It's the same with you. No matter what Satan is putting in your life to destroy you and discourage you, God will take that very thing and use it for good. You have to believe in him and trust him. The second thing, not only does God use an ungodly degree, he uses the stupidity of Moses. And Moses squanders what he has available. He's out. Now, he, do, he does a terrible thing. It's out of this heritage he has as being a, a Hebrew. He sees a Hebrew being abused, and he kills the Egyptian. So now he's a murderer. He thinks nobody sees until the next day, two Hebrews are fighting, gets involved. He says, who are you? You are going to kill me too? What? Who knows? And so he flees for life. The text goes on to say that Pharaoh finds out, and he's out to kill him. So no wonder Moses flees to Midian, the desert. Now, why? Now, the Bible doesn't go into this, but we can surmise. Because you can learn a lot of stuff in a palace. He had the finest of the finest. But one thing you typically cannot learn in a palace is humility. Humility requires brokenness and emptying ourselves and having to face ourselves. Humility usually happens in deserts. God uses the deserts of our lives to break us and to refashion us. Deserts are terrible. They're windless. They're arid, dry. Uh, We we feel like we're starving in a desert. We feel like we're dying in a desert. But that's the exact place God will take us, and he he will make us prepared for his purposes. What's this mean for us practically? Two things. First, when God seems silent, he's not. He's not. Think of these people in Egypt, four centuries, 400 years. How many families, how many babies were born, grew up, had kids over and over and over again and saw nothing good happening? And they must have certainly thought God was done with his people. What he said to Abraham was a crock. Not so. He was working behind the scenes all the time, waiting for just the right time for his liberator to be born. Lamentations 3 says he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. So many people, so many people there during that time period never discovered what God was up to. And you know, in your life today, it was many of us will be, have been born, we will live, we will die without seeing bigger things that God was doing through us that we won't know about until we're dead and gone. That's why we always live serving the Lord to the very end. You know, how many things God's going to accomplish for us? Some of you are praying for your kids who aren't walking in the Lord or grandkids who aren't walking in the Lord. You keep it up because you don't know what God's going to do through your influence after you're dead and gone. God continues to work and minister. And also, when God seems exclusive, he's not. If you think God only works with elite people or super faith people, here he's working with a murderer, isn't he? Yes. He doesn't work with certain kinds of people. He works with anybody. It doesn't take a lot of faith. It just takes, what it takes is the right object of your faith. Sometimes our faith in Jesus can seem really small, but if, that's, if he's the object of your faith, that's all God needs. Moses is being prepared for an encounter with God. God's getting him ready. He doesn't kill that Egyptian until he's 40 years old. He only knows palace life till then. He's got 40 years more to go in the desert. He's not going to be... 80 years old. God's preparing him for age 80 when He's going to call him. There's still hope for me, even. God always works with us as subjects, His subjects, not as objects, because we each have a will, we have a certain psychological makeup, we have each have a story of our own uh, history. And he weaves all that together for his purposes when we let him. He's always preparing us. He's always preparing us for something more. Do you know that today? Today, he's preparing you for something more. But you got to let him and believe that. And finally, God's plan involves the weak, not the strong. God never works through the insiders, but the outsiders. He works through the poor, the marginalized, the excluded, the oppressed. He works through weakness, not power. He works through failure, not achievement. For those of you acquainted with Genesis, he seemed, God always seems to pick the wrong people to use. In, a, in an ancient world where the number one son gets the privilege and is the one through, through the, that, that really bears the family name and gets more of the family lamb than anybody, that's not what God does. He always chooses the second son. He chooses Abel, not Cain. He, uses, he chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. He chooses the barren woman, the older woman, the unlovely, the unloved. He chooses Sarah, not Hagar. Rachel, not, Le, not Leah, over and over again. So we come to, to Exodus 1 and 2. Who is God using? Not males. The heroes are females. Females. And a world where female, females were of no value except to bear children. And they are the heroes here. There's only two males in Exodus 1 and 2. And one is wicked and one is foolish. There are these two midwives. They're told to kill baby boys and act like it's an accident, but they won't do it. Now, they're in that position because they don't have children. Midwives didn't have children. And, and we have, they're, they're viewed as useless and they're viewed in that culture as being cursed by the gods. They are the lowest social status possible. Yet verse 21 in chapter one says, God rewards them by giving them families. So here they are, viewed this way, they commit an act of civil disobedience in the face of social injustice. They stood for what was right. God used the lowest of the low social outsiders, gender outsiders, economic outsiders to save save this baby that was going to be Israel's liberator. In chapter 2, we have Jochebed, Moses' mother. She's commanded to put this throw this baby into the river and kill it, but she doesn't. She puts Moses in the river, but not the way that Pharaoh orders. What's it mean? What's all this mean? It means if you've ever felt like a nobody, forget that. If you ever feel like you're on the low end of the totem pole, that you're of of lesser value than anybody else in God's kingdom, forget that. If you are in Jesus Christ, there is no one who's a nobody. God knows your name, and he knows where you are. And he takes you from where you are and he'll do bigger things and greater things than you can ever think and imagine. You may, you may be a mom choosing to stay home with your kids and all you feel like you do is wipe noses and make peanut butter sandwiches. But you're doing one of the greatest works in the world. You may be stuck in a cubicle like your life's going nowhere and there's no hope for promotion. You're just, you're just putting your time in to pay bills. God wants you to see that you're, he's about something much bigger than your cubicle. you got to open your eyes and see and make your life available and see what would happen. You can be retired and think, man, i have blown up my ears. I'm into my life now. Nothing for me. Really? Have you ever read stories of those people who in retirement finally got their act together? Just hope for me even, you know. I got my Medicare card in my pocket this month. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. You know, I mean, I don't care where you are. I don't care what your life looks like. Maybe humdrum. You may feel like you're not that important. Please get past that. God has saved you for his glory. And he wants to do that And you. He knows your name. But let me say this too. If we stop here, you know we've we've missed the greater narrative, we missed something far greater going on. Does this story sound familiar? Pharaoh is threatened by babies being born, so he orders them killed. Fast forward centuries, Herod the Great hears about this baby being born who's king of the Jews, and what's he do? He orders babies to be killed. Word gets to Joseph and Mary. Of course, by the angel God sends them, take the child and go to Egypt, of all places. So they take him down to Egypt. Funny, isn't it? That so many centuries later, that's where that's where uh, this great liberator once was, surrounded by riches in Egypt. And he came out of Egypt as a liberator. And when he was coming out of Egypt, before he was ready to lead, what happened? He went to the desert for forty years. Jesus, in time, as a baby, came back out of Egypt. When the time was right, he was raised. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, the Bible says. It was time for his ministry. What happened to him? He went into the desert, the wilderness, for how long? Forty, not years, 40 days, getting ready to express the love of God, the love of Father. And then we have this wonderful scene in Jesus' life when he's taken to the mountaintop and his appearance is transfigured. His clothes are brighter than lightning, it says. And he appears on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. And Luke chapter 9 says that they're talking about Jesus' departure from the earth. And that word departure is the same word for exodus. Exodus. This is the wonder and the plan of God. Moses was a great liberator socially, physically. But Jesus is the ultimate liberator. He's the ultimate Moses. It's his ultimate purpose that Exodus is about. It's his ultimate purpose of dying on the cross and raising on the third day that leads us out of slavery to sin and death. Moses was the liberator at the risk of his own life, but Jesus was the ultimate liberator at the cost of his very life that he laid down for us. The English Standard Version, translation of Exodus chapter 2, closes with these words, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. In other words, he understood, he saw And he looks at your life today, and he would close this service the same way. He looks at you, and and God knows. He knows exactly what you're suffering through, what you're struggling with. He knows what your life is. He's got something more for you than you know today. Now, I don't know where your life is. Let me give you some options. Maybe some of you are living in the palace. You're enjoying life as it is, cruising along. Life's great, it's nice, but that's not what you're created for. Palace life is nice. Moses had a great life, but that's not what he was created for. It's time to leave the palace and the luxury and get down to brass tacks about kingdom work. Some of you may feel like you're in Egypt. You're absolutely trapped and you know what you're a slave to. It could be an addiction to money, or your job, or a wrong relationship, or to a drug. Any, there's all kinds of addictive practices, and you're, you're enslaved. Could be you feel like you're in Midian. Your life right now has been dry and lifeless and windless. All I know is God wants to prepare you. He's trying to prepare you for something more, something better, something greater. But you have to believe that, and you have to trust that. And you have to live your life that way, that there's nothing more important in your life than the glory of God. Today, if you have not surrendered to Jesus, you are enslaved and you don't know freedom. Now, that's not my word. That's not my judgment on your life. That's what the scripture teaches. And you are missing God's best. In a few moments, Tyler's going to be baptized into Jesus. We're going to celebrate with him. And some of you need to do the same thing. If you have not surrendered to Jesus, you're a slave. You're a slave. And God wants you free. That only happens through Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We celebrate who you are today. There's none like you. And I pray, Father, that anybody here today stuck we'll get unstuck in this journey together that will take us forward to a freedom where we are truly free indeed to god be the glory in jesus name amen stand